focused on all things Venezuela. Each episode, your host, Rafael, provides the latest updates on one of the greatest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world, with guest features from journalists, subject matter experts, and activists to give you insight into what's really happening in Venezuela. Fighting through heavy state censorship and disinformation, and bringing you the truth with sensible commentary and engaging stories they don't want you to hear. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at State of Venezuela. And now, your host. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. First and foremost, I want to wish you all a very happy 2021. Happy New Year. Very happy to be back on the show. Get the wheels up and running. And for the first episode of the new year, I am joined by Jose Nino. He's a freelance writer based in Austin, Texas. His articles have appeared in Business Insider, Zero Hedge, and the Mises Institute, prominent contributor to the Mises Institute. And in particular, he is also the author of How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela and Why the U.S. Should Stay Out. It's going to be a great interview. Very much looking forward to it. So, Jose, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Rafael. So, Jose, um, let's first get started with your background because it's very similar to mine. More American, if you will. Um, you were raised yeah, gringo here. Solano. Yeah, exactly. Gringo Solano. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> let's get started with that. You were born, though, in uh, Venezuela, correct? Yes, I was born in Valencia, Venezuela. My dad was originally from the, the state of Táchira. He's part Colombian, though. He has... A lot of Colombian parents. My mom is actually Colombian. She's from Cartagena, okay. which is pretty much a cultural extension of Venezuela in many regards. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was born in Valencia, Venezuela, and I came to the States in 97, around the time I was six years old. Both my parents were pharmacists, and my dad was branching out into a small business project as well that he was doing that was a kind of like print shop company on the side. But they started to kind of see a lot of the instability hit them in the mid-90s, especially when inflation was getting near triple digits. People tend to forget this, that in 96, it almost got to like 100% the inflation rate. And they, my parents were really impacted by it, especially my dad. He had to close up shop. And after pondering the situation a bit, my parents put two and two together and they saw the writing on the wall that things were not looking good. This was against the backdrop of Hugo Chavez's two failed coups in 92 and then just the economic instability of the 90s. Granted, Venezuela was still, in a relative sense, the most prosperous Latin American country at the time. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, they saw a lot of macro trends and stuff happening as well at the micro level with increasing crime that they did not want to gamble with my sister and I's future. And they decided to just move to the North Dallas area to start a new life. You know, it's interesting. Number one, you sort of answered a question I was about to ask you about the um, maybe the moment where your family decided that it was a good time to pack up and head out of Venezuela. Uh, it's interesting that they decided to do it even before the rise or the election of Hugo Chavez in 98. And for whatever reason, it seems like among Venezuelans and among analysts who study the Venezuelan situation, there's this sort of misunderstanding that Venezuela's problems started with the rise of Hugo Chavez. And certainly it exacerbated a lot of the issues, like you mentioned, but- certainly was not the cause itself for a lot of what we're seeing today. Would you say that that's maybe one of the most common misconceptions in your experience that you felt that you had to explain when you were in the process of making this book? Yes, this is one of the bigger myths regarding Venezuela because this is mostly common among outsiders because there was a significant minority of Venezuelans 
who understood that there was something wrong, such as Carlos Rangel, which many Venezuelans are not aware of, who was a prominent intellectual that in many respects predicted the collapse of the social democratic order that was installed in the early 1960s. And even though a lot of the Venezuelan population was not that aware of it, I think the gap is starker among international observers because Venezuela has never really occupied the center of attention for Americans. And they generally just say, oh, it's Hugo Chavez and everything went downhill, which is partially correct because Chavez not only implemented a lot of terrible policies, but he just doubled down on stuff that was happening beforehand and just gave it a much more authoritarian kind of tyrannical twist to it. But you have to understand the the social and economic conditions that led to the rise of Chavez that I believe were numerous preconditions set during the Punto Fijo era from the oil nationalizations to the increased state presence in the Venezuelan economy that led to that. But I think the Chavez period was very transformational in the sense that it was a mask off moment where the petro state not only became much more powerful, but the new government in power was just going to dispense with a lot of traditional democracy altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you um, do a very good job of elaborating in the book. And you even go as far as to explain the rise of Simon Bolivar as a part of the equation as well. And interestingly enough, in my own experience and in my own research, I've noticed that it very much can be traced back to the settlement of the Spanish in the colonies in Gran Colombia, which of course includes Venezuela. So talk to us a little bit about the chapter where you talk about the influence of Simón Bolívar. Um, You describe him as a demagogue, and the way that I described him in my own works on Venezuela is as a caudillo, and it seems like there's a bit of overlap in those two descriptions, right? Yes, my my views on Simón Bolívar have become a bit more nuanced over time, I think that's where I've somewhat changed. He was a man of his time, a great military commander who saw where the winds were blowing with regards to a declining Spanish empire and overall like Latin American polities that were tired of just arbitrary rule from local despots and despots abroad in Spain. However, his philosophical basis was different from that of the founding generation in the U.S. because the founding generation of the U.S., for example, drew heavily from classical liberal principles that I would say trace their origins to the establishment of the Magna Carta in Mm -hmm. the U.K. in the 1200s. Whereas Bolivar was a product of a very Spanish environment that was heavily predicated on top-down rule and sometimes even petty despotism with very little regards to individual freedoms, federalism, and other concepts that separated the U.S. from the rest of the world altogether. So you have this weird kind of smorgasbord of ideas that are drawn from not just like the Spanish tradition, but also Bolivar tried to incorporate some aspects from the American Revolution of federalism. That's why even in Latin America today, you see countries with constitutions and nominally federalist systems. But even with that, they still have crazy amounts of instability. And the thing is that the Latin American wars of independence were in many regards kind of accidental due to the fact that the Napoleonic invasion created a significant power vacuum in Spain that created opportunities for numerous political actors such as Bolivar and other figures throughout Latin America to rebel and create kind of like their own political fiefdoms, if you will. Mm -hmm. Because the irony was that there were certain factions within Spain that were wanting to reform the monarchy in a way that would be much more classically liberal. And uh, in that confusion, that scared a lot of Latin American elites, such as Simon Bolivar, who thought that if the Spanish were able to 
knock off their Napoleonic overlords, the incoming restored monarchy would be a very classical liberal monarchy that would strip local elites of Bolivar of their power. So Bolivar and them thought the best thing was just to break free. And in many regards, he, he unleashed a kind of Frankensteinian experiment, if you will, where it kind of went out of control in the way that they tried to govern Gran Colombia and other Latin American polities that he became disillusioned. And I think this was Bolivar at his most prescient moment where he said that Latin America is going to have decades of instability marked by petty despotism, economic collapse, and social disorder. And to be honest, I think that it was a pretty bold statement that he made that required a lot of introspection. And I believe he was correct. And for that, he should be praised. However, his legacy, I think he's become some of this weird symbol where Latin American politicians, they try to project their own image onto him to validate their political project, whether it's some right-wing government in, I don't know, Colombia, or it's the Chavista regime, where they try to claim the legacy of Bolivar, and it's kind of weird. And while I do believe he does receive some, should receive praise for his military heroism, it's one thing to just totally deify him and create this revisionist narrative to justify your current demagogic political project. I tend to like more of Miranda as opposed to Bolivar, Francisco de Miranda, Mm -hmm. because he was much more in line with the Jeffersonian founding father's vision. And he was also known for his bravery. One of the few men that fought in the American revolution, the French revolution and the Venezuelan War of Independence from Spain. And that's what my major theme has been, is that Bolivar was a man of his time and who should be praised for what he did, but also there should be an objective critique of some of the stuff that he did as well that many governments following his demise have copied and continued to replicate until this day. Mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with your analysis, actually. Um, Francisco de Miranda, for, for the listeners, fought alongside Simón Bolívar during the uh, the revolution to try and liberate Gran Colombia from the Spanish. And they, like you correctly point out, had a different vision for Latin America and for Gran Colombia specifically. And one of the things that you point out that I think is very relevant in Venezuela's later history is the fact that patronage seems to be a very intrinsic component of Venezuela's history. Because like you said, these people like Simón Bolívar essentially established themselves as the dominant elites among the indigenous population. And they used patronage to try and liberate really themselves. But it wasn't for the sort of principles of pluralism that I think motivated the colonists to sign the Declaration of Independence. And these instruments of political patronage have never really been truly reformed in Venezuela. In fact, in your book, you talk a lot about how this natural extension sort of made itself more apparent with the discovery of oil in the early 20th century under, um, who was it again? Was it Juan Vicente Gomez? Yes. Yeah. Juan Vicente Gomez was really when you saw the Venezuelan state basically modernized in many regards. Yeah, so that that sort of economic model also was, uh, I think, started to unfold with the discovery of oil. To what extent would you say that oil played a role in creating the sort of, um, I guess, dual economy that sustained this, uh, this sort of big state ideology that as you point out, predates uh, Chavismo as a whole. Well, there's definitely multiple phases to this because I think that from the discovery of oil in the mid-1910s up until the establishment of the Punto Fijo model in the early 1960s, Venezuela had a pretty rational and pragmatic policy where it was relatively private. The state still tax a good portion of it to fund public infrastructure. 
mm-hmm. as any pretty normal competent state would do. And that model worked pretty well. In fact, Venezuela by the 1950s was on par with a lot of European countries in terms of standard of living on a per capita basis. Some indicators have shown that it was actually in the top 10. Mm-hmm. And the model was working quite well. You had a pretty robust civil society. The economy was stable. It was booming. Even it boomed when oil prices were low. That's actually a myth that a lot of people really don't really talk about how Venezuela was just built on high oil prices. It's not necessarily the case. There used to be pretty solid institutions that allowed for rule of law, respect for contracts, and created the environment that investors could not just invest in oil. You had a burgeoning touristic industry as well, and also a growing steel industry too. Unfortunately, I think once the Punto Fijo model was established, you had very overzealous politicians that thought that if you just take over the oil industry and use petroleum rents, you could just throw all that money from petroleum rents to politically connected organizations Mm -hmm. or businesses, and then you will just grow to prosperity because oil prices will always remain relatively high. And what they really didn't take into account is that a lot of politically connected corporations, they're just not very effective. They're not only inefficient, but oftentimes very corrupt. They don't deliver good services to people. Mm -hmm. And it's really just a form of cronyism. In a free market, you would have corporations that would be rewarded according to the services they deliver, not their connections to the petrostate. And that engenders a lot of animosity because not only do you have angry consumers, it's also a question of justice. Why should a government that's breaking in massive amounts of petroleum revenues be giving money to these corporations when this money should probably be used to build general infrastructure, to provide for law and order, to fund more national defense stuff, or as well as doing just general research as opposed to just one isolated sector that a certain group of politicians lobby for. And this creates tension that I believe most people don't talk about because it's better to have a more depoliticized economy than to have one where you have politicians arbitrarily saying this is for the national interest and just dumping a bunch of money into sectors that are clearly inefficient and corrupt. I agree. And I think that it fosters the sort of clientelism that began with the uh, the age of the caudillos in the early uh, colonial foundation of Gran Colombia and by extension Venezuela. And since a lot of the value of the economy, like you said, flows from the top down, it created this sort of dependency relation between the people who actually capture the uh, the rents from the oil and mm-hmm. those who actually consume them. And it wasn't just the uh, the corporations that helped guarantee or secure these national interests, but it seems like they were able to get away with it because at the same time, they were giving it out to everybody else. So yeah. it seems like everybody was a beneficiary. So as long as that production or the the rents, if you will, from, from the oil flowed down from the top, everybody stayed happy. And that's why in spite of so much government patronage and the solidification of a spoil system, it seems like they were able to get away with it because everybody, whether it was middle class, lower class, upper class, was thriving to some degree, right? Yes, that is correct, because when you have the initial years of this model, Venezuela from 1910-ish to like 1980 was really prosperous and there was still economic growth. But in the backdrop, you had a house of cards ultimately, and people don't really notice that house of cards collapsing until it's like fully collapsed. And unfortunately, you started to see that unravel in the 80s with the inflation starting to kick off. I hammer this point away to people that talk about Venezuela, that Venezuelan millennials have never really seen a year of single-digit inflation. And the last time that inflation was below 10% was in 1983, right before their devaluation. And a lot of that is downstream from the fact that the Venezuelan Central Bank was largely politicized in the 1970s, where the government now had a direct stake in the bank and would be pursuing more easy monetary policies. And 
Inflation is the ultimate hidden tax on people. That's how you destroy savings of the middle to lower classes. And I believe that the inflationary policies that started kicking off in the 80s were a a straw that broke the camel's back in that you started to see the social contract of Venezuela's petrostate just erode due to that Mm -hmm. because – At the end of the day, as long as the economic prosperity of the country trickled down to all people, the political class was safe. But once that started unraveling, it's when things got very heated and you ultimately saw the breakdown of the Punto Fijo model in the mid-90s. Yeah, a lot of that was kicked off by the um, the Caracaso. I feel like that was sort of a a culmination of everybody's... uh frustration sort of vented through that particular outlet, but it was the result of a lot of, um, I would say maybe like a groundswell of frustration because people were no longer uh, beneficiaries or even recipients because of the measures that were being implemented by, um, I can't remember who was the president at the time when the Caracas occurred? Carlos Andres Perez. And it's actually ironic because Carlos Andres Perez is the one that installed the modern-day petrostate in the 1970s through his nationalization of the oil industry and also through his politicization of the central bank. And what's funny about Carlos Andres Perez, he kind of had a come-to-Jesus moment in the sense that he recognized that the Venezuelan petrostate was collapsing, so he tried to do what he could through some IMF reforms, which were a mixed bag. What I think destroyed him was he never tamed inflation. And as a result, his party ended up impeaching him and he was ultimately left, ultimately jailed in disgrace for embezzlement and other crimes. But he was an interesting figure in that he recognized that the petrostate that he created was a Frankenstein project that was unsustainable and was going to really lead to the breakdown of the Venezuelan economy and political system altogether. Yeah. And then it was after that, in the midst of the political chaos, uh, you write in your book that radical groups took advantage of Venezuela's political turmoil to advance their agenda. One of the most famous, of course, was the revolutionary Bolivarian movement, which was led by Lieutenant Colonel Hugo Chavez. And it goes back again to this point that he took advantage of the chaos that was going on at the moment, right? It wasn't just sort of like, you know, Chavez ex machina, out of nowhere, I'm going to ruin things. Uh, Certainly made things worse, but he took advantage again of the political disarray that was going on. Very much so. He was definitely a product of the success of the Punto, the initial success of the Punto Fijo model given his background in the military, which was a viable career option for many Venezuelans of lower stature to move up the socioeconomic ladder. However, he is a really strange figure because of the fact that he understood that there was something wrong with the Venezuelan model that was collapsing. And even in his presidency, he kind of sounded somewhat like a right-wing centrist, and he was also appealing to the legacy of Marcos Pérez Jiménez of Venezuela's peak in the 1950s, and he was blaming the two-party system for this corruption, which was kind of correct, but it was ironic because this shows also a disconnect between how people campaign and how they govern, because Mm -hmm. we have seen so many times throughout history of politicians campaigning as one thing, but then governing as another, and Chávez basically not only just repeated the failures of the previous model and ironically has maintained a lot of that structure, but he's just added even more toxic elements to it, which have created irreversible economic problems so far for Venezuela. Mm -hmm. But it's a really interesting topic to study because of the fact that the Venezuelan model was on the ropes when Chavez was launching his coups and Chavez's constituency was largely from these people that were negatively impacted by the changes made in the 70s from the central banking to the patronage system. Yes. And I actually want to go back to that real quick because 
a lot of the successes that happened under Perez Jimenez that Chavez was tracing back to, I think in one interview, he even said that Perez Jimenez was the best president that Venezuela ever had. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what made Perez Jimenez stand out as far as a um, beacon of positive economic growth in spite of some of the controversies that he's mostly known for among Venezuelans? Yes, Perez Jimenez and I'd say Juan Vicente Gomez are really controversial figures because they were authoritarian leaders. Ultimately, mm-hmm. they did use repressive measures against leftist activists from social democrats to flat-out communists. And we can debate the merits of that another time. But what's undeniable about Perez Jimenez, he was much more pragmatic than a lot of authoritarian leaders in that he knew how to balance U.S. capital with Venezuelan national interests. He allowed for the U.S. to invest in the oil sector, was on pretty friendly terms with them. But also he did promote the taxation of oil revenues so that Venezuela could build up its public infrastructure. Pérez Jiménez was just known for building up Venezuelan infrastructure from roads to hotels and other services that made Venezuela a beacon of hope for Latin America. He was pretty pragmatic in that sense that he knew that you needed to have a market economy to fund a lot of critical infrastructure that will let your country jump to the next level of development. And for that reason, it's understandable why Chavez would praise him for that because he presided over a time when Venezuela was becoming a emerging power within Latin America and many countries were looking to it as a form of inspiration as well at Mm -hmm. that time. Right. We've covered in different episodes some of the measures that Chavez implemented, like currency controls, expropriations, and price controls. But there's something that we haven't talked about on this show yet that I found really fascinating in your book. And it was particularly Chavez's gun control agenda. One of the things that I think is really interesting in your book is that you talk about how there was something that was instituted at first in the 1930s, which helped establish Venezuela's state monopoly on firearm usage. But then once Chavez came in, he implemented other measures that were much more anti-gun and that in your view had a much deeper impact on helping not just consolidate his control, but also to guarantee the uh, fomentation of suppression at any future instance. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. In the 1930s, yeah, you, as you mentioned before, Rafael, Venezuela established its gun control framework, which severely limited the type of rifles that civilians could own, which at that time was only 22 caliber rifles and shotguns. And in certain cases, they could possess handguns, provided that that they had obtained a license. But that changed with Chavez, who took it to another level, as he did with so many other policies that were implemented beforehand. He would just double down. 2002, the Venezuelan government passed the first version of the Control of Arms, Munitions, and Disarmament Law. Mm-hmm. which just reinforced the Venezuelan state's grip on firearm ownership. And then a decade later, the law was changed to enhance the scope of gun control in Venezuela so that the Venezuelan armed forces had the power to control, register, and even in certain cases, confiscate firearms. And you saw in 2012, this one high profile incident that has received a good deal of coverage in the U.S. where Venezuela implemented a ban on the sale of firearms and ammo. Mm-hmm. And it was ultimately actually a total failure because it was marketed as a measure to fight crime. But nevertheless, crime has surged in Venezuela. And Venezuela still remains one of the most violent countries in Latin America. To tie this all together, ultimately, Venezuela's gun control experiment has not served as well for maintaining basic public order in that 
lawful citizens don't have the ability to defend themselves from the many criminal elements from the colectivos to the megalandas and other criminal organizations that are allowed to run loose. And also, they don't have a means of potentially defending themselves from tyrannical activities that the government tries to implement because the right to bear arms in the U.S. has always been used as a check against direct military crackdowns. Because in many societies that don't have a right to bear arms, when the military decides to attack the populace, they can just do it at will without any form of resistance. And it's something that is it's kind of an insurance policy or at least it gives you a fighting chance against a government that goes way out of bounds. And it should be noted that among the most dangerous cities in the world, in the world, not even in Latin America, but in the world from last year, by murder rate, of the top 10, three are from Venezuela, particularly Caracas, Ciudad Bolívar, and Ciudad Guayana. So the fact that people, like you say, aren't able to defend themselves and that this was done under the banner of fighting crime and the direct opposite has occurred under the implementation of this law goes to show that it's proven futile. And not just that, if you see some of the, uh, some of the videos of people protesting on the streets, the really the tyrannical measures implemented by the regime, not just the National Guard, but also the colectivos. Something that you correctly point out in the book is the fact that these colectivos, these paramilitary police groups, these vigilante groups, they uh, they sort of reign supreme in barrios of Venezuela, and they're allowed to terrorize communities, both rich and poor, because they have no means of defending themselves. And when they go out to protest, you know, they have cardboard shields. That's that that's their weapon that's the nature of the beast in many countries and unfortunately venezuela has had a maelstrom of terrible political and economic factors coalescing into one where just having that option can make the difference i mean this is a country where you have a saying that people don't live in venezuela you survive in venezuela and that's why i am of the opinion that the second the US Second Amendment is truly special and it gets mocked by a lot of foreigners, but they really sometimes would wish they have it if their political systems just go through a complete breakdown. And that's why I mentioned this point to document that Venezuela never had this concept. And this is not just exclusive to Venezuela. This is this is a largely worldwide trend. And it's also more relevant to Latin America at large because the foundational principles of Latin America are very different. They are the product of an Ibero-American context where you never really saw a coherent, classical, liberal, constitutionalist vision come into play in the region. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very good point. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a coup de gras, if you will, on any future insurrections. I mean, there are other checks that have been put in place by the regime. Things that we've talked about in previous episodes, for example, assistance from from the Cubans specifically to try and set up and maintain a vast and, uh, to their credit, successful security apparatus, not just on the citizenry, but also on the armed forces. And it makes it very, very difficult for citizens to uh, really to fight back. And that actually goes back to another thing that I wanted to ask you. Um, In the past two years, we've seen that there have been louder calls for regime change. We just went through parliamentary elections in December, which have all but stripped the opposition movement and by extension its leader, Juan Guaido, of its political capital, because a lot of that was premised on his ability to consider himself the de jure president, according to the articles of the Venezuelan constitution. But now that the parliament belongs to the Maduro regime, that has been stripped from him from a, uh, from a legal standpoint, if you will. So now we're in this situation where all options have been exhausted. There is really no future that I see for the opposition to be able to go to the table, the negotiating table with any sort of leverage. I think all the leverage now is on the other side of the table. I mean, it already was to begin with, but any hopes of that, I think, are 
have been effectively dashed. So my question to you is, with this situation, as far as the prospect of intervention goes, I don't mean necessarily unilateral intervention, because I think that's something that, um, and I would love to get your take on that specifically, but I mean intervention from the international community. What should the international community at large, in your view, do to, um, I, I don't even know what the end goal would be here, because again, things are just so complicated. I don't even know if regime change alone would do the trick to you know, find some semblance of normalization in the country. Yeah, I've, <clears throat> I don't really like to do the quarterbacking from abroad on what should be done in Venezuela. I'm more of a realist with non-interventionist leanings, though I will say this, if the U.S. were to have a foreign policy, it needs to be Western hemispheric centric. I don't really care much for a lot of these nation building schemes abroad. And there's a lot of other countries that can build their own balancing coalitions and ultimately have their own spheres of influence within their backyard. I'm fine with that. But in the U.S., I think that there is an interest of seeing what's going on in Venezuela. One way I think that they could have done something is to pass the buck, if you will, the term in international relations to countries such as Brazil and Colombia to form a somewhat of a coalition to kind of contain Venezuela. Because I think Venezuela's biggest threats are through the transnational networks that it facilitates, which can create a lot of problems for its neighbors. So a good way is to have Brazil and Colombia boost their defense spending and secure their borders and just make sure that Venezuela's networks do not penetrate into those countries to starve the regime of money. I think there's a way you could do a more natural regime change as opposed to doing a unilateral intervention because there's a lot of factors involved that could get really nasty when you do a unilateral intervention where you could really wake up a sleeping giant of massive leftism in Latin America because leftism in Latin America is very anti-US. It draws from the fact that US interventions are supposedly bad, and they use that as a rallying cry to build up their forces. You could see massive blowback in that regard. Also, I think that in Venezuela, too, the criminal element is something that I'm not even sure the opposition has a plan to to tackle because these gangs are really just powerful altogether. And that's going to be a challenge from the start. You could see it in massive counterinsurgencies that will be occupying the opposition, a hypothetical opposition government's entire attention. You'll have to get that sorted. And I think Chavismo, I hate to say this, but it's definitely a force that's going to stay. It's going to manifest itself in one way or the other in Venezuelan politics. And to defeat that, I don't know how, how you're going to go about doing that. I do think that there is a case to be made for targeted sanctions and not allowing government officials to just start making money out the wazoo in the U.S. I think those those policies are more pragmatic, but a type of like nation building type of intervention is really costly. And the U.S. has so much problems to begin with that I don't think it really makes much sense. I do think, though, because against a bigger backdrop, I do think there is a breakdown of the traditional post-World War II order where there's a lot of multipolarity and I think it's going to turn into a bipolar order where it's going to be US versus China, where it's going to get interesting because China has become increasingly involved in Venezuela. They made a big investment in Huawei there. And in many respects, they might actually implement a social credit system, if you will, there. And the Venezuelan opposition could get very nationalist in a way, in a very anti-Chinese way, anti-CCP way, if China continues to flex in Venezuela. And I believe that is actually a strategy because some of the most effective forms of opposition movements are in contexts where other countries are intervening in that country's affairs, and you could build a solid movement to rally against that. You saw that with Eastern Europe 
with the Soviets where you had Poles, Balts, and other groups start to rally on very ethno-nationalist terms against what they saw as an occupation force, if you will, in the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Going back to something you had mentioned earlier about China, you're absolutely correct. We're going to go into that in a future episode for sure, talking about or concentrating on China's role in Venezuela and not just bailing them out, but fostering really um, Chinese-style authoritarianism that we see implemented in China through the use of that social credit system. In fact, two ways that we're already seeing that in Venezuela now, uh, and I don't know if you've, uh, if you've heard this spoken of in Venezuela, Jose, but uh, number one is, of course, the nation's reliance on the clap boxes, that food distribution initiative mm -hmm. that focuses on boxed rations that are distributed by military officials. It's a form of also of racketeering where people essentially give them away and are distributed in exchange for votes. And then you also have to get them exclusively through the use of the fatherland card, which we've talked about in several different episodes, which is that ID card that collects basic data like date of birth, home address, but also more personal information like political party membership, state benefits, unemployment, medical history, the works, right? and there have been reports through major media outlets and anecdotal evidence that suggests that the cards have been used to discriminate against non-card holders to deny access to medicine and other government benefits. So once you institutionalize that deeper level of social control in Venezuela, Chinese style, it makes it so much harder to get people to break out of that system. Yeah, the, the, I, ha, I have admittedly not followed Venezuela as much as recently, but I think that with the new realignment in geopolitics, because we're talking more big picture, they're going to have very strong ties with China. And China has cleverly used a lot of economic investment and political maneuvering throughout Latin America especially in Panama, for example, they have a pretty significant Chinese diaspora and the CCP treats its diaspora as a resource to tap into. The Chinese diaspora is nearly 100 million people abroad and it accounts for roughly north of $3 trillion of economic activity. So they've tapped into that. And now a lot of countries such as Panama, they don't recognize the independence of Taiwan. I think there's is in, established in 2017, and they've done so in other countries. My view is that this is a gradualist strategy where China ultimately, I think, wants to create a kind of Cuban Missile Crisis 2.0, where it, and I could see the flashpoint being Venezuela once they start making military investments there, which is I think is inevitable, to where they say, we're going to park these assets here, and we have an ultimatum. The U.S. needs to completely abandon the South China Sea and all this sphere of influence, and then we'll remove all our stuff from Latin America. But I think that they're they're aiming for something of that nature. I'm pretty convinced because China's aim, they're playing the long game. They start with innocuous investments, and then they start ramping up into buying up strategic sectors, and eventually it's going to go militaristic in terms of their investments with countries. And I believe Venezuela is one of those flashpoints because Ultimately, we're playing a geopolitical chessboard game at now. It's a different era. We're no longer in the democracy promotion in the Middle East era of Bush and Obama. It's now turned into a great power conflict where you have a multipolar order at the moment that is seeing countries such as Russia and China become more assertive. But ultimately, I think that once all the dust settles, it's going to be really China as the opposite pole and the U.S. as the other pole. Mm -hmm. That can definitely go into a uh, an episode all its own mm -hmm. as far as Chinese imperialism and colonialism, you could call it. Definitely in Venezuela, it's no different in that sense. Mm -hmm. You make an interesting point that I haven't really given much thought of as far as Venezuela being a flashpoint for some sort of meeting in the middle of the road of the United States and China. I always thought that Iran would be playing that role. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but 
right now, Venezuela, because of their inability to refine their own oil, they're having to import gasoline, the vast majority of which is coming from Iran. So I always thought of, of Venezuela being a flashpoint for those two countries. But well, this is all connected. You mentioned Iran. Iran just signed off a massive deal, this trade deal with China that involves massive investment, not just in the private sector, but also ports, military investment. And they're within this order. This kind of order, if you were if you will, is what's called colloquially the Dragon Bear. It's a strategic partnership between Russia and China. I think China is going to end up being the majority partner very soon. It has many demographic advantages over Russia, and it's just such a much larger economy. And Venezuela is going to be in that China poll. You can bet the house on it, honestly, at this point. Because anytime the U.S. tries traditional punitive measures such as sanctions and regime change, saber rattling or whatever, it seems that it just pushes those countries into that pole even harder. You've seen it with the maximum pressure campaign in Iran. And, and also you're kind of seeing it with Russia too, where you're hearing talks of Russia, not just talking about cooperating with China economically, there's talk about potential military exercises and the whispers in the halls about a potential alliance, which I think is dangerous because I think that statecraft should use balance of power. We should be trying to pull these countries out of another country's geopolitical orbit. I don't like the idea of trying to remake the whole world in America's image. You should use real politique where you can try to deny China a sphere of influence by taking away Russia from its sphere of influence, also not being as hawkish on Iran. I would say that, like I've said before, we need to have a more Western hemispheric policy where the U.S. should be trying to facilitate more trade with Latin America, also share more intelligence, help build up Latin American militaries so that we don't have to always be there and build up their intelligence services to, so that we can destroy any type of clandestine networks that foment unrest and prop up pretty nuisance governments such as Venezuela, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. Um, I've talked with policymakers and other people that I've interviewed uh, in this podcast have told me that they've shown up to policy briefings on different parts of the world. And for whatever reason, the Middle East still continues to reign supreme where the room is just packed. But as soon as they go down the list and they get to Venezuela or just Latin America as a whole, by then, you know, half of the room is gone because there's just not that much interest. But as far as Venezuela goes, I think that it's a very good point that it's a general flashpoint for all of these different elements that make up this opposite end of anti-Americanism. And you're absolutely right. A lot of that was exacerbated in the 2000s. For my listeners who remember, there was this sort of pink tide in Latin America where you had all of these different presidents um, from Venezuela down to Argentina, all of them sort of working to foment and to solidify this sort of us versus them mentality where it was the oppressor versus the oppressed. And Russia and China have sort of hopped on that bandwagon and now it gives an ability for them to nestle into Venezuela and project more of their influence in our own backyard. And what concerns me is they might sort of extend their tentacles, if you will, into not just Venezuela, but other places that are supposed to be traditionally our allies like Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, yeah. very, very possible. This is the problem I feel with U.S. foreign policy. In, I've been a critic of it for a long time, and I've been called all sorts of names, but I just say it's like straight up. I want the only U.S. foreign policy we should have is very Western hemispheric centric. There, there's just so many developed countries that can handle their own affairs and balance co and build their own balancing coalitions. With regards to Iran, for example, at least you have now the, Saud the Saudis and the Arab states now making peace with Israel and normalizing relations to form a balancing coalition. I don't see Iran 
as an imminent threat to the U.S. It'll, it will be contained one way or the other. And in many respects, it will be contained kind of by Russia and China because they also have investments in the Middle East as well. They're not going to want some country just throwing its weight around, trashing their investments and blowing stuff up. There's a natural tendency in those type of systems to self-regulate. There, it's not going to be a doomsday thing. Those countries are becoming more developed and they can handle that. In East Asia, you're seeing the emergence of balancing coalitions with China. I don't think that China's conventional threat is that much of a threat to the region. I think those countries will figure out ways to do it. But with Latin America, I think that we have to start getting serious about the fact that the U.S. needs to refocus on Latin America, make sure that these countries are stable. They have solid law enforcement to military so that we don't have to bail them out all the time and eventually they grow up and become responsible actors and we have to also set kind of like the red lines as well that we don't want massive intervention here and if we have to we can just say we can remove presence from other areas that are not traditionally in our sphere of influence if we're going to have a sphere of influence let's make it the western hemisphere let's not make the whole world so on that note, one of the concerns that I have, Jose, is um, I sympathize with a lot of your points. In fact, I don't see why you should be called names for having that sort of policy, because uh, I think it's it's pretty rational. We shouldn't be forcing our hand or extending it at the expense or detriment of our own people or our own side of the world. But at the same time, I think as we move into a new year with a new administration, one of my primary concerns is that there's really no sense of people wanting to look into these nuances, highlight these nuances, and calibrate the foreign policy of the United States based on those nuances. Because your take has been very nuanced, and I agree with the majority of it, but a lot of the, the sort of isolationist rhetoric that I'm hearing from uh, people who want to, I guess, sympathize with us getting out of other parts of the world don't seem to want to include or account for those nuances. So as a writer and as a policy analyst, how do you think we, we should um, educate the public at large or those who are writing these different aspects of foreign policy so that people understand that, that there's a right way to go about this? where if we say isolationist or if we say uh, the U.S. should stay out, that it, it means more of what you mean and less of turning the cold shoulder, per se. It's funny because I've been called isolationist a lot, and I actually tend to sympathize with a lot of those elements. And the problem is that we have to just go back to basics and understand the origins of U.S. foreign policy, that it was, generally speaking, very restrained and only focused on its sphere of influence with the Monroe Doctrine, because there was an understanding of the Monroe Doctrine that we would not intervene in European affairs, provided that they don't intervene in our affairs in, the, in our domestic sphere of influence and also the greater sphere of influence of the American continent. But I kind of want to transcend that in many respects that what I'm trying to get at is if we're going to have a foreign policy, let's start thinking beyond sanctions and military action and just try to build up countries through trade, through sharing of intelligence, through use of best practices to build up their militaries, intelligence infrastructures and just public security in general, so that we don't have to always be there to save them. Because the U.S. has tons of problems. I'm going to be honest, you are seeing a pretty massive social breakdown and political breakdown. And for me, you have to get your house in order before you can start lecturing other people to get their house in order. However, I do think that you can build a pretty robust movement that talks about cooperating with strategic partners and allies in Latin America to build them up so that they can become mature entities that don't need to have their hands held. Unfortunately, we've given them largely the cold shoulder due to, I think, the ruling classes 
misplaced foreign policy priorities. And we have to have more intelligent conversations that take into account all sides of the aisle. Because I actually tend to be more, I guess, more restrained and some people would say isolationist. But I also recognize that there are geopolitical realities. And if we're going to have a foreign policy that's coherent, let's just focus in Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I really appreciate the take, Jose, because you're absolutely right. I think that some of these nuances have to be extrapolated from the history of our foreign policy. And I think that there's really no reason that we should, shouldn't scale back our uh, our past intervention efforts, especially after dropping trillions of dollars in other places around the world that have yielded very little results. In the case of Venezuela, though, something that you point out in your book is the potential for disaster that's emphasized by the fact that Venezuela's disintegration has spread into the very social fabric of the country itself. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that, because that goes not just into the uh, the fact that you know now we have this sort of tributary state, but also the fact that we have these criminal elements, gangs, and uh, and branes, these these prison groups and chieftains who rule prisons. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, when we talk about economics here, we have to look beyond just numbers because with Venezuela's economic breakdown, which is largely facilitated by its crazy central banking policies and overzealous interventions from the price controls, exchange controls, you see not just an economic collapse, but a societal collapse. Because when you destroy private property and the laws of economics, you destroy civilization. These are foundational pillars of civilization, and people just go back to their most basest instincts. Especially with easy money, you have no incentive to really save people, live for the moment. They don't really do any type of future planning Mm -hmm. and just completely ignore the idea of building a kind of foundation that you can pass on to your posterity. And that's what you see a lot with the, the rise of these criminal entities that engage in very destructive behavior just to make a quick buck. But it's part of a much larger problem. And... I think that's where we have to talk about like the benefits of having a limited government, free market. But there is, I believe, a solution as pie in the sky as it may sound. I've been on record saying that the emergence of cryptocurrencies from Bitcoin to Dash and Venezuelans starting to use that is a proactive way to not only improve their lives, but actually transition into a much more stable political and social order without the chaos of traditional politics. I'm of the opinion that we may have the beginnings of a transitional technology that will change the way people do commerce. Because if we look at a broader picture of the world, the past century, it's been marked by just massive central bank interventions that help politicians finance all sorts of misguided foreign policy projects abroad and demagoguery at home. So I do see a way out of this that Bitcoin and other technologies will allow for Venezuelans to take advantage of skills because Venezuela, one thing that I believe that has held consistently that Venezuela has done right over the past century, it's created a pretty strongly educated population that is skilled in not just the petroleum sphere. You have a lot of good Venezuelan programmers. You go any country from Chile, I lived there for two years, to Miami in the US, you'll find a good deal of tech savvy Venezuelans. And these Venezuelans are starting to use their skills in a way that I believe will do much more to build up Venezuela and create a new country that will break free from the errors that were implemented in previous generations. And I'm pretty convinced that the Venezuelan people have strong human capital and skills. It's just a question of them finding the right avenues to channel them. And I believe cryptocurrency is one way. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Um, Part of the solution is to prioritize replacing patronage with pluralism. The sort of pluralism that we see here that, you know, albeit is not perfect. And like you say, we definitely have a lot of um, 
a lot of things that we need to fix in our own house. But you are absolutely correct on the need to promote revolutionary technologies like Bitcoin and by extension, cryptocurrency and blockchain as a whole, because what it will do, and I've talked about it in another episode, and I'll definitely talk about it in future episodes. If we advocate for something that's open source, that will give people more individuality, more autonomy, sovereignty, things that Venezuelans really have no true concept of, unless you know they've been using it to fend for themselves, uh, promoting individual empowerment, unlike the social credit systems of China or like the Maduro regime itself that manufacture consent. Those are essential for preserving a free and open society that I think would be the first step towards a true conversion from what we're living now to what we could be living tomorrow. So I just have two questions left here, uh, Jose. Number one, uh, I thought this was really, really interesting. Uh, this, um, this chapter that you have for secession as the answer for Venezuela. This is one that I had not heard of before, but talk to us a little bit about what you mean by secession. Well, I was spitballing at the time. And to be honest, I may, I've largely changed my view, but it was just a hypothetical that I was just putting forward because I'm a big believer in the concept of radical decentralization. Mm-hmm. So you have the state of Zulia. For those unaware, that's where Maracaibo is located. It has a pretty distinct culture from a lot of the rest of Venezuela. The Zulianos are famous for that, the Maracuchos as well. and I can attest to that. Yeah. That's where all my family's from. <laughs> yeah, and actually, my my godmother is is from there as well, and it's a different culture, and that's how you where you can kind of create a movement there that may not be may not be explicitly secessionist, but you can use the idea of creating a more autonomous region as a competing jurisdiction, because ultimately, competing jurisdictions is what allowed for the West to be successful, especially Europe, because in contrast to the East, you had just centralized mega states, empires, whereas in Europe and also by extension in the US, you had pretty strong competitive federalism between jurisdictions. And I'm of the opinion that if Colombia and Brazil were able to kind of band together, you could see a scenario where you could have a part of Venezuela that is ultimately partitioned. That's a kind of like a free zone. That's free, a Chavismo free zone, if you will. But that there's just so many moving pieces that it's kind of unrealistic at this point, but it's just an idea that was floating out there because this is a way to promote more decentralization and more competitive jurisdictions. Borders don't always have to be fixed. History over the last 500 years has witnessed the collapse of many empires and the breakdown of nations into smaller polities. And ultimately, people tend to respond to governments that are closest to them, that are aligned with their cultural and political interests. But I think that with Venezuela, I think it's going to be much more complicated. And I tend to believe now that the more pragmatic situation is, I think, the promotion of cryptocurrency there, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, even though you were just spitballing, I think the idea is fascinating. And really, at the end of the day, a lot more ideas like that should be added to the conversation because it does get boring when we have to hear the same tired tropes regurgitated by the same people that get us absolutely nowhere Mm -hmm. and that have gotten us nowhere. So uh, that's why I wanted to bring you on in the first place, man. I think these ideas are very important and we need more... uh, more dissenting voices, more that are going to help reinvent the wheel because the wheel is broken at this point. And that'll, I think, will get some movement going as well because the state of inertia that we find ourselves in right now, it can't continue any longer. So yeah, I want to thank you again for for coming onto the show, man. Uh, Tell the audience, if you could, where they can find you on social media if they want to keep up with more of your work. Well, if you want to keep up with just my regular social media activity, just head to Twitter at Jose Al Nino, Jose Nino there. And also on Facebook, I have a page that's Jose Nino too. For those who want my newsletter where I share my articles and just daily musings, you can go to my website, joseelnino.com forward slash newsletter. 
And I have also premium content for people who want to learn about local political strategy and build up a successful political career, whether as a candidate or as a grassroots activist at the Nino file on Patreon and Subscribestar. Perfect. Yes. I'm going to have all of those links included, the Patreon, the Subscribestar, the newsletter, your website, Jose El Nino, a link to the book. How, again, that's How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela and Why the U.S. Should Stay Out. It's an ebook. It's a pretty short book, but very much worth it in terms of substance, in terms of history. The guy gets it. Trust me. I'm endorsing you on that one. You have a very fresh and unique perspective on all this stuff. So again, man, keep it up. I really like what you're doing. And thanks again for coming on to the show. No problem, man. It's always a pleasure to share my crazy thoughts. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one.